We're talking about being intentional. That's sort of the series that we're on. And it's really been, it's been a word for me this year. I love uh, Simon Sinek and some of the other leadership guys always talk about what is your word? Uh, starting for the year, what is your word? Mine actually started because I'm a nonconformist, Maggie, back in about June. So May and June, I'm thinking about like, hey, what's my word? And it starts really early, but that's how you, God usually works with me is he'll start something and then I'll just carry it over. So my word for this year is intentional or intentionality. And our series tonight is, is the third of, of uh, probably five um, called Being Intentional, Being Intentional. So last week we were reminded of the tenets of Keystone Church, right? The three. Can anybody name those for me? Except Teresa? What? Man, she got you as creator. Woo, way to go. That you're so awesome. She's so excited. Awesome. Yes, connect in community, connect in culture, and connect to the creator. We connect in community to discover who we are or, or what we are. We, discussed, we, just, we connect in culture to discover why we are. And we connected the creator to know who we are. Uh, really, everything that we do at Keystone Church, we wanted to run through that filter. We wanted to say, hey, does this match up with what we believe God's called us to do? Does it, does it help us define what we are? Does it help us define who we are? Does it help us define um, um, what, who, what's the other one? Why we are. Gosh, I always forget that. All right. So this last week, I've been challenged by Matthew 25. Matthew 25 has just been in my heart, in my spirit, and we read a little bit of it last week, and I just want you to turn your Bibles there or go on your, your fancy-dancy iPod pad things and go to Matthew chapter 25. This is the uh, New International Version, and I didn't read this last week simply because of time, but I want to read it this week to you again. Matthew 25, uh, verses, hang on, 40 through 45, I think, 40-something. Okay, we'll just start reading at 40, 40. Let's go back. I'm sorry, I can't even see. Okay, verse, I think it's 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. You might want to underline stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you in strange, as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And go visit you. Verse 40 says, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That has just been challenging me this week, not only personally, but as, as a body of believers and as a church, what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? So I've been challenged by that all week. I've also been disappointed by some comments given by a president of a Christian university this week. And what I'm about to read you, I, I read in an in incredible humility. This is not a judgmental message. This is not pointing the fingers at anybody saying they're doing something wrong and we're, we've got it all right. I just want to lay out a case tonight of how far we've drifted from the original message of Jesus. An interview given by Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, to the Washington Post. 
Falwell defended his consistent support for President Donald Trump. And by the way, this is not a political statement either. Just hear what I'm going to say. And even claimed it may be immoral not to support him. Falwell, who is president of Liberty University, also said there was nothing Trump could do that would endanger support from himself and other evangelicals. But it is Falwell's comments about the poor that are getting the most attention. It's such a distortion, he quotes, he says, of the teachings of Jesus to say that what he taught us to do personally, to love our neighbors and ourselves, help the poor, can somehow be imputed upon a nation, Falwell said. I wrote, what makes up a nation if not people? He also said that there was a distortion that the United States should be loving and forgiving because Jesus taught love and forgiveness. In the heavenly kingdom, the responsibility is to treat others as you'd like to be treated, Falwell said. In the earthly kingdom, the responsibility is to choose leaders who will do what's best for your country. He added this. Think about it. Why have Americans been able to do more to help people in need around the world than in any other country in history? It's because of free enterprise, freedom, ingenuity, entrepreneurialism, and wealth. A poor person never gave anyone a job. A poor person never gave anybody charity. Not of any real value. It's just common sense to me. I don't know how that strikes you. But at first, I thought my head was going to pop off because it just showed me how far. Again, I say this with incredible humility and not pointing the finger at Jerry Falwell Jr. or Liberty University or anything like that. All I'm saying is it let me know how far we strayed from the original tenets that Jesus laid down. How far we strayed as a church, as as believers of Jesus, to say that, that this, this doesn't matter and it doesn't apply to the nation. It doesn't apply. Well, what makes up nations outside of people? And what makes up, what makes up boundaries and cultures outside of people who love Jesus? How, how are we ever going to change this, this nation if it's not through people? This just lets you know how far we've drifted and how far off we are to say that the poor could never help the poor, to say that the poor never offered anybody of charity. I wanted to, my head popped off my head for a minute. My body came off. I've seen the poor work together. I have seen charity given together. I have worked the streets of Gary, and I have seen what people who had little to nothing give all they had. And can we simply be reminded when Jesus said, Oh, that widow, see her and the two mites that she put in the offering? She has given more than anyone with all their wealth. It just goes to show us how far we've drifted. And I hate that he's speaking for evangelicals. I believe Mr. Falwell's comments fall well short of what Jesus taught. It is in the fellowship of his suffering where we know the real Jesus. And it's not to say that in the context of what I think he's thinking there's truth, but I also believe that it's been twisted, even as Satan twisted scripture to tempt Jesus. We as a nation have been able to help millions around the world. There's no doubt about that. It's not these words that fall short. It's not enough to say that we as a nation are helping people and then say the poor can't offer charity one to another. This is the heart of the gospel, my friends. 
The heart of the gospel will always be found in the poor, in the marginalized, in the forgotten, in the hopeless. That's where the face of God is. That's where God is. That's where you want to find the gospel? Go to those places. You will find the gospel. This version that we have, this perverted, pimped out version that we have in America, it is not the gospel. It is the fellowship of his suffering. That is the truth. The fellowship of Jesus' suffering. But what does this suffering mean? What does the fellowship of his suffering mean? Does it mean that it's only when we suffer can we really know Jesus? Or perhaps a better understanding is when this verse we just read is put into context when relating to it. So the fellowship of the suffering could be also related to Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, where he said, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Stop your evil deeds. Get them out of my sight and stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. If we want to know how to respond to something like this, something that is just so far removed from the, the real intention of the gospel, then this is a good place to start. Take up the case of the fatherless. Take up the case of the widow. Find injustice and make it right. Well, let's unwrap this. Philippians 3, 10 through 11 says this. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Perhaps it is safe to say that in order for us to be a partner in Jesus' suffering, then we must be, I've got this highlighted and bolded in my notes, we must be in fellowship with those that are suffering. If in fact Jesus said, when did I see you poor, naked, abused, and, and, and cast out? Well, when you did it to the least of these, then you did it to me. And so if we put it in context and we can actually connect the dots, we can see that being in fellowship with Jesus' suffering isn't necessarily mean that you're suffering. It means that you're in fellowship with the sufferings of Jesus through the people that are suffering. Does this make sense? I said last week that we got to be in close proximity if we're in, in order to affect change. We have to be in close proximity if we want to correct injustice. We've got to be in close proximity to those things that are not going right in our city, in our families, right here under our noses. It is safe to say, and you may want to write that down, that the fellowship of a suffering is being in fellowship with those that are suffering. It can also mean that when we are in close proximity to those that are suffering, we may in turn experience the suffering of Jesus. Then as Paul states, know the power of his resurrection. If we're not in close proximity to those who are dead, we're never going to see the power of resurrection in their life. We've got to see and be in close contact with those who are hurting and those who are marginalized, and those who are forgotten, and those who are hopeless, and those who are under the wheel of oppression. I don't want to be associated as an evangelical that stood up for tax reform while I didn't stand up for the fatherless. I don't want to be known as an evangelical who stood up for a strong economy and forgot the widow and the poor. 
I don't want my grandchildren to say, why did you just sing your songs louder while the oppressed were taken off to concentration camps? I don't care about the stock market successes when injustices still occur in our nation. What are we going to be known for? My friends, it's time to put aside our Christian nationalism. It's time to lay aside our dedication so much to a flag that we've forgotten the gospel. It's time to set aside this, this, this my land, get off my land, and say this land isn't actually intended and blessed of God for nations. But let it be said that we were associated with a wounded Savior, a lamb led to the slaughter. Let it be said of us that we associated with the forgotten. And as an old theologian said, the oddities of, Barman's, of Barnum's circus should fill our halls. I thought that was pretty good. The oddities of Barnum's Circus should fill our halls. I, did, I just watched The Greatest Showman the other day, too, so that really makes sense to me. There's a dude on there with three legs. Have you, I've seen it like ten times, so catch the dude with three legs. It's bizarre. The <laughs> My friends, I say this as an illustration that we are in danger as the church in America, of putting our national interests ahead of the gospel. We are in danger of singing our religious hymns louder, as the German Lutherans did, while the Jews are being carted to cattle, like cattle to the ovens. Have we forgotten the words of our, math, of our master? In Matthew 20, verse 16, he said, So the last will be first. And the first will be last. Or perhaps in 1 Corinthians 1.27, he said, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Perhaps the revelation that we need to understand is that, and that I believe Mr. Falwell misses, is the kingdom is not built on the monies of any nation, nor their economic system, nor their entrepreneurship, nor their wealth, that is not how the kingdom is built. The kingdom is always found in suffering and weakness. And the least of these. Perhaps if we were to embrace this upside down kingdom, then we would really know, we would really know what it's like to see the kingdom come and his, and his will be done. To quote an anecdote regularly associated with Thomas Aquinas in a discourse with Pope Innocent II back in 1200, the Pope, it says, was counting the church's treasury. Masses and masses of money were at his feet. And he looked up to Thomas and he said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold, have I none? And Thomas Aquinas replied, true, Holy Father, but neither can she now say, rise up and walk. When we exchange literal upside-down thinking with the wealth of the world, prestige, power, position, we forfeit the way the gospel works. So we can count our money and say, hey, we can no longer say silver or gold have I none, but we can no longer either say rise up and walk. Perhaps the comments made by Mr. Falwell reflect the hearts of many in the American church. Again, I don't know, and I don't want to be spoken for by him. And I kind of want to run from the term evangelical. 
Alan Hirsch said this, he's a prophet in our own time, and he said, if we're going to be genuinely Christ-like, we will not be conformist. Maggie, you'll like this. For one, our Lord can hardly be called a conformist. He disturbed the status quo, rallied against injustice and the lack of mercy, hung out with highly questionable people, and fomented a, re a revolution that called for the overflow of religious oppression. This guy, is, this guy is walking the planet today saying the American church is already dead. He's, it's already dead. It's already dead. If we don't start a revolution, and it could be through persecution, we're, we're impotent. He said this as well. The main stimulus for the renewal of Christianity will come from the bottom and from the edge and from the sectors of the Christian world that are on the margins those who think differently, those who see differently, those who aren't in mainstream Christianity, those who don't conform and those who are allowed to question and have freedom and be transparent and be vulnerable and be developed and be intentional, those are the ones that will see Christianity rebirthed as it should be. It's hard for us to grow up in a certain way our entire lives only to realize that perhaps that's not the right way. Guilty. It's hard for me to look at the gospel, and I, and I love what he also said. He said, we read the gospel from the position of a conqueror and not from the position of a conquered people. Isn't that good? We, we don't read it through the lens of the way it was written. We read it through an imperialistic view because we've, we're, you know, we're who we are. But it was written from a, from a point of view of slavery and oppression and I'm forgotten and where are you and why are we under this rule and how come you didn't establish your kingdom and all these questions and, and it's just not the way the gospel was supposed to be read. It's almost impossible for us to read it correctly without Holy Spirit. What are we going to be known for? A better way to say this is, is Jesus known at Keystone? It's not so much what Keystone's known for. Who cares? Really? I mean, if this all, who cares? But what is Jesus known as at, at Keystone? How, how is Jesus reflected here? Is Jesus' message really reflected? Again, this is not a message to beat you up. It's, if anything, I'm slaying me. And you just get to be in on my session. <laughs> I, I don't care what Lonnie Dyer's legacy is. What is Jesus' legacy here at Keystone? Is Jesus known in our city because of us? Is Jesus known and the gospel known because of what we're doing and how we're solving problems and how we're inserting ourselves into situations of injustice? That's what I want for our church. That's what he wants for his church. To borrow a book title is, How Now Shall We Live? Having this information, how now shall we live? What can we do with this type of information? What shall we do with this type of knowledge? Knowing that the hypocrisy of the mainstream evangel evangelicalism is being exposed, the time to blame is not the answer. And that's not what I'm doing tonight. Please hear my heart. 
I'm not blaming Jerry Falwell. I'm not blaming Liberty University. I'm not blaming mainline evangelicals. But I feel like this is sort of a cool exposure. It's, it's really kind of cool how the Holy Spirit let these words be stated so that we can go, whoa, wait a minute. That's really far away from what the gospel states. The time for more finger waggling and, and division is not now. It's not the intention of this message either, by the way. It's simply following, the time is simply following in what Jesus did, exposing the injustices that we, happening, that we see happening all around us. But I believe this is actually a wake-up call for our church. Again, I love the body of Christ. Man, I grew up in it. I love it. I'm for it. As many of you did. Many of you grew up in church. Many of you love, had great memories of church and, and the fellowship that you had. And, I mean, we had the old musty basement with, you know, casseroles coming out the girls' bathroom. It was just crazy, you know. That's my memories. I loved, okay, maybe a bad illustration, but there was a lot of casseroles. I just saw a pink door going to the girls' bathroom. I, honestly, our church had pink door, blue door, in case you were confused. <laughs> So I know that we have a lot of good memories. I just feel like as, as we grow and as, at a keystone in this season of our life, we have to level up. We, we have to. We, we have to be intentional about being the gospel in our city. We have to be intentional about speaking out against injustice, even though it may come against our comfort. We are not... Oh, listen to this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. We are not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Isn't that good? We're not here just to bandage up the wounds of folks that are run over by the wheels of injustice. We're here to literally change the wheel. If you know this history of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was in Germany at the time of the, of the Holocaust in World War II. And he's the one who stated that in the Lutheran church, we would sing our hymns louder as the trains went by hauling Jews to the ovens. We didn't want to hurt our nationalistic pride as good German Lutherans while injustice was being served right under their noses. I don't want to do that. I don't know what's, what's the end goal of our nation. I, only God knows, right? But I can tell you just from history that we're not headed in a good direction. When our mainline evangelical churches are lining up with the state, it's a good indicator that we're a long way off from the gospel. When, it's, when people say, it doesn't matter how immoral a person is, he'll never lose my support, we're a long way from the gospel. When we have put our own ease and our comfort over the gospel or we monetize the gospel, we have pimped out our inheritance to the highest bidder. And we try to make money off God's people and we shear the sheep. I mean, there is a woe. A woe is like a bad curse. Like God's like, don't mess with that. In Ezekiel, it says, woe to you shepherds who shear my sheep and slaughter them and eat their fat. 
no bueno, El Pastor. I like El Pastor. That's really good meat in Mexico. It's Thank you. It's really good. Pineapple on it and some jalapeno. Oh, I'm sorry. You guys, this is serious stuff. This, woe to you. That's a big time no-no. Don't shear my sheep. In other words, don't take advantage of them. And, and yet for hundreds of years, what we've done and what we figured out to do is how to make money on the gospel where it becomes not the gospel at all. And we've actually pimped out our inheritance. When there's a seemingly hard story of Jacob and Esau. You guys remember it, right? And Esau states, hey, man, I, I, I killed this, but that's not what I wanted. And, da, 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 and I got this, you know, you know the story. And he deceives his dad and he sells his birthright because he's, he's so hungry, so he sells what was his to his brother. And, and interesting thing, the Bible says that I have rejected you, but Jacob, not that Jacob was right, but Esau sold out. You feel the weight of that? And once we start ringing the cash registers in our churches, we have sold out. We have sold out our inheritance. And therefore, whoever's the highest bidder comes along and says, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Hey, yeah, man, you'll get the right people in office that I want. Hey, we'll, we'll follow you right off the cliff. When the church is wed to the state and the culture, it puts real Christianity away in the attic while the less than genuine thing is displayed in the front room. This is a true story. When Teresa and I were going through church planning training, they told us, don't do deliverances and do messy stuff on a Sunday morning. Because you never go to a car dealership and you see them working on the car in the showroom. That's always done in the garage. I'm thinking, uh, what? Yeah, don't, don't do anything, don't do anything messy on a Sunday morning or during your service, but you want to you wanna do that in private, in the back. And I'm thinking, Jesus never said, oh, hang on, blind dude. I don't want to mess with my flow here, so we're going to find a tent. I'm going to spit in your eyes, and you're going to come out healed. It was always done in the middle of the people. We were always willing to expose our weaknesses and our, and our mess and our muck right in front of everybody. That's what makes the gospel beautiful. Because it's never done in the glassy hallways of a pristine marble lane church. It's done in the back streets and the alleys where people are struggling the most. So where does this leave us? We can no longer put away the true measure of the gospel in an attic while the less than genuine thing is displayed in the front room. I recently reached out to our city leaders and asked, where and what are the biggest injustices or issues that our city is facing, and where can we as Keystone insert ourselves and solve that problem? So my friend that I meet with once a month, he stated that he couldn't wait to get together with us and share where we can get involved. I think the next step for us is like, wow, yeah, great. Okay, now let's do something. Where can we serve the most? Where can our little family just say, we want to adopt an issue. We want, to, we want to solve a problem. What are you guys facing? What are some things in our city that you're constantly facing, and how can we help? How now shall we live? Guys, it's time for us as Keystone to be intentional about inserting ourselves into the problems as a song 
was sung tonight and injustices that we see in our city, we can be the change. We will be the change. We must be the change that solves problems and brings hope to the hopeless. I, again, I want to make sure that we get tonight's message in a, in a way that is received from a place of humility. It's not a place of accusation against Jerry Falwell Jr. It's not a, it's not a place of e- even accusation against mainline evangelicals. It's, it's really, it was really introspective, honestly. I, 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 when my head popped off, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why is my head popping off? Because it's me. And how long have I sat and done nothing and no, or nor spoke out about something that I ardently disagree with because I might offend someone? The problem with having the strength of woo, winning others over in your top 10 as a strength is that you're, you're always trying to win others over. And so sometimes it's hard for people like me to offend someone or to try to offend someone or not really want to offend anybody. So I, my, my invitation, to use David Reyes's pastoral words, for us tonight, aren't you proud of me, David? Thank you. Is an invitation to be challenged. It's an invitation to look and say, whoa, wait a minute. That doesn't even sound right. And yet, that's the way major mainline Christians are believing in America today. I, I, I am inviting you to be challenged, to raise the level in our lives. I'm inviting you to say, hey, how do we solve a problem? Is it sex trafficking? Is it the homeless? Is it widows and orphans? I mean, I, 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 do we start a storefront for single moms and just solve that problem? Do we say, just come to us, we'll solve your problem? We'll give you clothes, food, money, shelter. What do you need? How can we get involved? How, what, how now shall we live? Maybe it's, oh, John Walton wrote me this week and he said, does Keystone have an address? I said, yeah. So I gave him the address, the physical address. I said, what's up, man? What are you doing? He goes, I want to start riding prisoners. What? He said, I got to do something. And my heart can't sit here and be sick and not do something. I'm going to start writing prisoners. And so if you have a P.O. box or something, they can respond to our P.O. box. And so I said, well, I'm going to invite people to join you. Hey, you're a single dad. How many Christmases has it been? Hey, you're a single mom in prison. How many Christmases? How many Easter's? How many Thanksgiving's has it been since then you see your kiddos? How many, how, many, how many lonely people in nursing homes never see their families? I promise you, that is the largest growing demographic in our nation, and they're forgotten. So, Keystoneers, how do we change this? We're, I, I, it's good. I love that we're having intentional small groups, and we're going to be changed and challenged in those. I love that we're developing one another intentionally in discipleship. I want to be changed and challenged in that. But along with that, I believe we really can insert ourselves into situations and problems and issues that we can solve. As you, get, you get what I'm saying? You're, you're looking at me either shocked or you're about to run me out of here. So one way or the other, um, I, I, again, I hope you, hopefully you hear my heart. If you're listening on the podcast tonight, I hope you hear my heart. 
is with humility and it's with reflection that I say we're in trouble and we gotta we gotta make some changes. We have to. Let's stand tonight. Father, the gospel is um, pretty clear. There's really no mystery to it. And I just think that the, the way we've lived it or, or, or tried to bastardize it into something that's not just not real is, is breaking your heart. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that we would just take in deep these words of our, our, some of the forefathers who ran before us who wanted to matter and who could not look away any longer and who actually gave their lives the ultimate sacrifice for the gospel. God, this week, may we, our eyes be open to the, to the marginalized, to the ones suffering. May the fellowship of your suffering be with those who are suffering. God, give us opportunities to not glance away and to stay conformed into our own comfort and, and yet let's, let us reach out to the leper and the blind and the homeless. Let us reach out to the widow and the orphan. Let us reach out and solve injustice and let your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.